Abby Kinney, and you are listening to UpZoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of UpZoned, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. My name's Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City. And today I'm joined by Daniel Harrigus, the senior editor for Strong Towns. Daniel, welcome. Nice to have you back. Nice to be here, Abby. Thank you. So I am going to need a little bit of your help here on this article because I understand that you you know, I've been following this story for a long time and I'm kind of getting caught up to speed, but I'm going to give it a shot and try to summarize what's happening currently in Seattle. So this article was published in the Seattle Times by Mike Lindblom, and it is entitled, Fewer Drivers in Seattle's Highway 99 Tunnel Could Create Need for Bailout. So during the winter of 2019, a tunnel for State Route 99 officially opened, which runs beneath downtown Seattle, Washington. It has been what I understand is a long-anticipated project with a really big price tag of $3.3 billion. The plan originally, uh, and I I suppose it can, can this will continue to be the plan, but it involves instating a tolling program, which is anticipated to cover $20 million in construction debt plus operating costs for the project. And when it first opened in winter of 2019, they basically stalled tolling so that drivers would be enticed to change routes and get used to utilizing the new tunnel. So it was toll-free for nine months after opening. So fast forward to when it actually opened a couple of months after tolling kind of hit, the COVID-19 pandemic hits, which as we all know, uh, you know, drastically changed traffic patterns, which is what the toll relies on to actually create revenue. And even today in fall of 2022, traffic patterns have not fully picked up to 2019 levels, and the tunnel is facing what some are calling a financial crisis. Uh, and even after imposing a an urgent 15% toll rate increase to make up for 2020 losses, the project is uh, estimated to have a $29 million deficit right now. So not a good situation for this tunnel in Seattle, Washington. There's some opposing opinions in the article that are laid out, you know, some people thinking this is uh, a crisis, some saying that we haven't seen the full impact and that, you know, traffic levels will come back. Uh, Daniel, what am I missing here? Can you kind of lay out this bigger picture, this, this broader story of how we got to this point in Seattle? Yeah, so this current situation where there's a huge shortfall in toll revenue and they're trying to figure out how they're going to plug that hole is just the last of a long, long line of insults piled upon insults added to injury in the whole history of this project in Seattle. And I've been following this story for a long time. So um, to attempt to rewind, you know, do the flashback here and let's get up to speed to where we actually are now. 
The Alaskan Way Viaduct was an elevated, originally it was an elevated waterfront freeway in downtown Seattle that was built in the 1950s um, during kind of the golden age of freeway building. And by, by 2001, it was showing its age. It was damaged that year in an earthquake and was deemed structurally unsound. And so Seattle started talking about what are we going to do with this thing? And in the meantime, it was creating a whole bunch of noise and pollution and um, kind of cutting off downtown Seattle from its waterfront, which by the 2000s, the waterfront is understood as we want this to be an amenity. We want public space. We want people to go down there. And the viaduct is kind of like the Embarcadero Freeway in San Francisco, like other historical examples. It's kind of seen by a lot of Seattleites as an albatross. So three options were proposed. We can rebuild the viaduct to modern earthquake standards, just as it is, though. Or we can tear it down and build a deep bore tunnel underneath the ground to accommodate all of that freeway traffic. Or we can tear it down and not replace it and build just a surface level street. Um, And it would be a boulevard. It would be multimodal. You'd have pedestrian and bike paths. You'd have park-like landscaping. In 2007, the voters of Seattle overwhelmingly rejected both rebuilding the elevated highway and building the tunnel, which was going to be really complex and expensive to do. So the voters of Seattle essentially expressed a preference for just doing the surface street. Um, At that point, the state government stepped in. The governor and the State Department of Transportation and a coalition of big business interests, such as Boeing, basically stepped in and said, whoa, 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 no, hold on. We got to move the cars. We got to move the traffic through downtown Seattle. We're going to have gridlock. It's going to be an economic disaster. Um, Essentially, what we've referred to as strong towns as the infrastructure cult. The infrastructure cult mobilized in a big way to make sure that a highway was rebuilt through downtown Seattle. Um, There is another highway through downtown Seattle, just to be clear for those not familiar with the area. Um, Interstate 5 runs north-south through downtown. And parallel to it is this highway, State Route 99, which functions as sort of an additional traffic reliever for I-5 and a bypass around downtown for local traffic that largely isn't going directly into downtown. It's just passing through it. The state basically steamrolled the city and said, no, we're going to do a deep bore tunnel. Um, And mayor at the time, Mike McGinn, really pushed for the surface level boulevard. Um, He served one term as Seattle's mayor. He's a longtime friend of Strong Towns. We've had him on the podcast talking about this project. Um, McGinn is actually now the um, executive director of America Walks. So he's been a big time active transportation advocate in Seattle. And he fought the good fight. um, And he sort of played the role of Cassandra, I think, in this project. He warned Seattleites, and he was far from the only one, but in his term as mayor, he said, this is going to go over budget. It's going to have construction problems. And in the end, it's not going to prove to be necessary in terms of traffic. And hmm. he has been vindicated over and over and over again. Um, the project began construction At the expense of $3.3 billion. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard four, but it depends how you measure. Um, oh, project, yeah. As is the way of almost every mega project like this, um, suffered huge construction setbacks and cost overruns. Um, The tunnel boring machine broke down underground. Um, Big Bertha got stuck and had to be, they had to drill an enormous shaft from the surface in order to access it and repair it. I have a friend who studied physics in college and is into doing oddball kind of math problems. 
And I sent him an article at the time about this. And he, he did a little back of the envelope calculation. And he said, I'm pretty sure it would be cheaper to fill that entire shaft with quarters to the brim than it would be to finish this project. And he was right. And that was the situation that Seattle found itself in by about 2015. But the project is done. And in 2019, they opened the new tunnel to traffic. And the funny thing is right away off the bat, there were some signs that the traffic situation wasn't what it had been sold as. We wrote about this in 2019. There was a three-week period where the old viaduct was closed in order to physically tear it down. And the new tunnel was not yet open. So there was a three-week period in which there was no freeway and all the traffic had to use surface streets. And the news stations in Seattle were on a loop for for weeks leading up to it. It's going to be Carmageddon. There's going to be all this congestion. 90,000 cars are going to have nowhere to go. And it ended up being a non-event. January 2019, the freeway was gone. There was no alternative. And most of that, most of those 90,000 cars just disappeared. And if you've been following Strong Towns for a long time, it's not really a surprise that that happens. Um, traffic isn't some immutable fact of nature. Traffic is the result of people's individual choices. And so what happened when you took away the capacity was drivers made choices. Some people carpooled. Some people went alternate routes. Some people worked from home for those three weeks. Um, some people switched to transit. You had a range of people making different choices. And so a lot of the traffic didn't simply get displaced onto surface streets. It just disappeared. And we've seen this over and over and over again in so many examples that like projects, these multi-billion dollar road projects are always sold as traffic is going to go up and up and up forever and there's nothing we can do but build more capacity to fit all the cars. And the reality has always been more nuanced than that. So this new story about the tunnel has to do with tolls. It has to do with the pandemic. Um, There are these nuances, but it is the latest chapter in a story of the infrastructure cult mobilizing to build something that Seattle could have done without. And there are a couple more wrinkles here, which I to get into, Abby. Oh, yeah. And I'd love to get into to that. I, I think the only thing I, I kind of wanted to comment on was that this, this project overall really does kind of feel like a very, um, you know, traffic engineering focused initiative because it's it's completely it seems to be just kind of this like mechanical plug, you know, the plug the what our expectations are into the model. And this is what our outcome is expected to be in terms of traffic. And you not only see that in how they set up the whole financial structure of the tunnel and how that was supposed to work, but also the design of Alaskan Way, which arguably completely undermines even the construction of the tunnel, because if you look at the you know ground level of Alaskan Way back in 2018 on on Google Street View, I was looking at kind of that design generally, and it was kind of a messy design, a lot of friction for drivers. You know, the parking was kind of sporadic and disorganized, smaller lanes, um, less lanes. It's the type of street that you look at and you're like, I hope a traffic engineer doesn't come in here and mess this up because this is the ideal situation you want for people walking back and forth. It 
you know, of course, the viaduct needed to be torn down. There's improvements that could have happened without actually expanding the traffic ways on the street, which is what they did. I mean, there's the lanes are all nice and wide now. They're nice and clean. It's, you know, definitely a traffic way now, definitely a strode. Uh, I'm sure traffic flows a lot better. I'm sure there's more capacity on this updated road, which completely undermines this whole tunnel that they've built. So uh, to me, this whole thing doesn't really make a lot of sense, especially because there's also I-5. I mean, it's like, I, it's like, what are we trying to achieve here in Seattle? It, it's, you know, can, can you fill me in here? I, I mean, is it, is it as nonsensical as it kind of seems? I think what are we trying to achieve is exactly the question that has not been answered coherently. Um, you pointed out another thing here, which just um, to, to sort of clarify the context, part of the sales pitch for the tunnel was we're going to relocate this ugly elevated highway that everyone hates underground and no one's going to have to see it or deal with it anymore. And now we've got all this space and we're going to reconnect downtown to the waterfront and we're going to be, it's going to be walkable. We're going to have new public spaces, new parkland, all this stuff. And we're going to have, uh, you know, a, a pleasant tree-lined surface boulevard on top of where the new tunnel sits and underneath where the old elevated expressway sat. And that's not what happened because the um, the, the level of service cult kind of had its way again. You know, Traffic engineers at their worst have this single-minded obsession with level of service or other equivalent measures of just how, how, how many cars can we move and how fast can we move them. And... I think Seattle was sacrificed on the altar of, of level of service here because when they ended up unveiling the design for the surface street on top of where the tunnel is, um, it wasn't a nice multimodal boulevard. It was essentially a gigantic strode. It is wide. It is fast. It is actually nine lanes in some places. So Seattle gets the worst of both worlds. They get a $4 billion tunnel that is running these enormous deficits and nobody can figure out how they're going to bail it out. And it gets a nine-lane surface strode separating downtown from the waterfront to replace the elevated freeway that used to separate downtown from the waterfront. And it's like, what are we doing here? Well, yeah, what are we doing here? And if we are trying to pay for a piece of infrastructure using a toll, it's well, like... You got a free road with enormous capacity. On the same route yeah, as the Yeah, don't design another at the same time. They designed another north-south uh, uh, route that has greater capacity. So if I'm a driver in Seattle, if I can, I'm going to take an alternate route, whether that is Alaskan Way or I-5, um, you know, if it makes enough sense. And so I, I just – that seems – really silly, to be honest. And I, I can't, I don't understand why you wouldn't completely de-emphasize Alaskan, Alaskan Way and for that matter, other north-south corridors throughout the downtown area and actually take capacity away. And this is one of those situations where, you know, you think about the outcomes of the freeways without futures movements. And I, I'm sure, you know, when people were we're approaching this project. The idea was that we're going to remove a freeway. We're going to reinstate a boulevard. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to take our city back. But what they've done is just expand capacity in two different places, which, you know, I, I think there needs to be some 
some tolerance basically for the idea of, you know, if we're going to, we need to be okay with reducing capacity and we need to be okay with congestion in our cities. It is what it is. We need to, to be tolerant of, of congestion, period. We can't just sacrifice our cities to level of service and, you know, be afraid of the fact that people might complain that there's traffic. You know, we let the the engineers with the old guard engineering mindset run the show here. And it's not just the engineering mindset. It's also the infrastructure cult. It's the moneyed interests that got to cash in on the construction of this project. I mean, there is a lot of money on the line for this old way of doing things. But the losers are the people of Seattle and especially downtown Seattle. Um, now I've spent a bunch of time in Seattle. It is a city that has congestion problems. It's It's been growing really, really rapidly. It's also a city that is really long and skinny in a north on a north-south axis. Seattle is squeezed into this little space. Um, and so that is a recipe for congestion problems. And the correct response to that is to recognize when you're up against the limits of relying on private automobiles to move everyone around a city like that. Um, Seattle, to its credit, you know, has made a bunch of investments in public transit, um, has actually been one of the leaders in the U.S. in doing that in a mix of ways, some of them smart, some of them I think less smart, but um, it's not that they're not doing the other stuff. The tough political fight and the one that the city lost when the state pushed through this tunnel is to really push back against the notion that traffic concerns and traffic flow and traffic speed should dictate the design of our city streets. Um, this is where I think the strong town's distinction between a street and a road as serving two fundamentally different functions is really, really crucial. So if I'm, if I'm Seattle and I'm looking at where I'm at now, I've got this toll tunnel. It has been built. It exists. And I want to get the most out of the benefits of diverting traffic into a tunnel downtown rather than having noisy, polluting cars at surface level. If I want to actually, I want downtown Seattle to enjoy those benefits. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look into congestion pricing for downtown because I'm going to say, okay, the surface streets downtown, the actual just grid of streets, these are streets. Their job is to be a productive place, to be a platform for valuable activity. Um, their job is not to move high volumes of cars. If people are on the streets because they're trying not to pay the toll to use this tunnel, I want congestion pricing on my downtown streets. I want congestion pricing on Interstate 5. I want to push drivers to pay the toll because the toll is actually a really valuable price signal. If you can get it right, you are starting to identify by adjusting that toll up and down, what is the actual value to drivers of this trip? Then you can actually calibrate your your car capacity to a level that is useful. But what we're doing when we're just saying we got to move the cars, we got to move them fast, we got to move a lot of them, we got to assume we're going to have to move huge volumes of them in the future, you're taking a status quo where car transportation has been free and the system has been kind of overbuilt, and then you're you insert a toll road into that, and you're surprised when people avoid the toll and they just go take all these other routes. I mean, we've seen again and again. Um, we've published pieces on strong towns about the same thing happening in Louisville, Kentucky, where they spent over a billion dollars for a brand new wider bridge across the Ohio River um, for Interstate 65. And then they told the bridge. And as soon 
as that toll was in effect, traffic volumes on the bridge fell by over half because drivers just took an alternate route. They didn't want to pay the toll. Um, but the problem is that which untold, which makes a lot of logical sense. <laughs> the untold capacity on the bridge, or the untold volume of traffic on that bridge, the number of cars that were using it when it was free, that was the whole justification for building this enormous project. That was the rationale they used. Look at all this traffic; we need to accommodate it. So it's kind of like you're giving away free ice cream, and you've got a line around the block for ice cream, like. Is that a measure of like the sort of organic demand for ice cream in your neighborhood, or is it the fact that you're giving it away for free? When roads are free, the traffic, the traffic volumes that we measure are to some extent inflated by the fact that the road is being underpriced. So toll roads are a really valuable tool, and congestion pricing is a really valuable tool to actually calibrate our capacity better to the real demand, because you make people demonstrate to you how much they value that trip and whether they're willing to drive at a different time of day, carpool with someone, take a different method of transportation. Downtown Seattle. But it really needs to be done comprehensively, right? Like it, you can't just do it to one route when there's a bunch of competing routes. Yeah, driver, drivers are voting with their time and saying, I'd rather spend a little time and take this other route and avoid the toll. They're telling you something. But if the only question you ask is, how can we move all the cars? You're going to get into this kind of situation again and again. And now they're in a dilemma because now they've got this toll road. They're counting on the tolls to pay back the construction debt and to pay for operations, but the toll revenue isn't enough. If you raise tolls to generate more revenue, you are going to drive away more traffic. And so you're in this, you're in this trap where the solution has to be comprehensive. And part of the comprehensive solution has to be saying, is the purpose of downtown Seattle's street network to move cars through downtown Seattle to go somewhere else? Or are we going to do what's best for quality of life in downtown Seattle and the drivers will figure it out? And if they have the option of paying a toll, we can set that price and we can calibrate it to demand, but only if they actually. <laughs> and it occurs to me, I think even on a regional scale, there's this kind of big picture question about, what what are we trying to accomplish in terms of how we're actually using tolling and congestion pricing? Because it's fundamentally different than like what New York is doing, for example. I mean, this is a case where they are applying tolling to a specific project without thinking more comprehensively about how these mechanisms work uh, at a regional scale. And I think that that is very risky because it's basically a big bet that relies on mass driving of probably single, you know, occupancy vehicles and ever increasing traffic and maintaining uh, a level of traffic over time that to actually pay back for the maintenance and part of the construction of this project, which is, I think, you know, probably directly competing with whatever transit uh, goals they have and and probably all kinds of other goals. But it's very different than actually having like a, a regional level plan for congestion pricing and tolling that interacts with the downtown that actually supports what the goals and intent of a downtown are. I mean, have you thought about the kind of the distinction between those two approaches to actually leveraging these tools because I, I actually think that these are great tools, but this is just an example of where it's been applied in a 
kind of a dumb way or, you know, at least not, not a very comprehensive way. Mm-hmm. Well, because it hasn't been applied with the goals that we're talking about in mind. The preconceived assumption is we got to move the cars. We got to move a lot of them. So we need this tunnel and we need this giant strode on the surface because we have to have the leans to move the cars. And that's been the starting point. And then, oh, well, now we have to pay off the construction debt from this project. So I guess we're going to toll it. And we're going to hope that the tolls generate the revenue. And it's money makes us stupid. That's just a a truism in any number of domains is that money makes us stupid. Um, And we have been willing for decades in this country to throw mind boggling sums of money at projects like this. Um, (laughs) It is the American way. And and specifically when those projects are for automobile infrastructure. So that's the infrastructure cult at work. And, You know, my grandparents lived in Seattle and I grew up going to Seattle almost every summer for a while in the 80s and 90s. And we would go downtown and we'd park the car underneath the Alaskan Way Viaduct where there were a bunch of little parking lots. Um, And it was kind of a chaotic, messy environment and um, certainly ugly underneath this elevated freeway. Um, Then we'd walk up the steps next to the roaring freeway to go to Pike Place Market or whatever. Seattle's waterfront has been shortchanged for the longest time and it's just a, it's a stain on the city. And then they've just doubled down on refusing to fundamentally rethink what are we trying to do here? So um, I don't know the status of the politics of it in Seattle and in Washington right now. I would hope that, you know, that this, this crisis that nobody has a good answer for needs to be the impetus for a fundamental rethinking of what is our goal and how do we, price the system and how do we manage the capacity of the system to accomplish what our actual goals should be. So Mm -hmm. easier said than done, right? It's not going away. (laughs) I'd like to see them get more cars to use it as opposed to using surface streets in as much as there is car traffic in that area. And I'd like to see them rethink what they've done with the waterfront and actually turn that into public space because it could be a fantastic amenity for the city, but a nine lane strode, is undermining both their transportation goals and their quality of life goals. Um, a perfect example of the Strode is the futon of transportation doing nothing well. Um, and it's because nobody's thinking about the goals. This is all reactive to a project that, you know, we had McGinn and we had other Cassandras screaming from the rooftops, this is a terrible idea, and they did it anyway. And I, I feel bad for Seattle, and I hope that there's a way out of this that salvages the benefits that actually should be salvaged. Well, so I think that's a good place to end it. Thanks, Daniel, for kind of providing the background on this project. I'm sure it'll be one to watch over the next couple of years to see how they, how, how this kind of sorts itself out or how they, you know, attempt to sort it out. But before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been watching or reading, listening to, anything that's been taking up our time these days. Uh, So, Daniel, I will hand it off to you. What is your down zone? Um, The biggest thing that's been taking up my time is dealing with uh, hurricane cleanup here. So. Um, I, when was I last? Yes. How well, was that going? I don't know if you've had a chance to talk with me on UpZoned about this, but. Uh, no, I haven't. So my house has an attached carport. And when the pandemic first arrived, we turned the attached carport into an attached front porch um, so that we could socialize safely with friends. And 
immediately we're kicking ourselves for not having done that years earlier because it was way better as a front porch than as a parking space. Um, anyway, I still have a front porch, but it's a little sunnier than it used to be because Hurricane Ian hit us and uh, ripped the roof off. The house is fine. Everything else is fine, but the uh, the carport is no more. So we've been um, looking up contractors and dealing with insurance and debating whether we kind of rebuild it as it was, which is just a cheap metal roof on poles, or actually do like a proper screened porch and kind of build build the structure we would like to have now. Um, I think in the end, we're going to make lemonade out of these lemons. But um, in the meantime, fall weather has finally arrived in Florida. Fall weather is what you most, most other places know as summer. So um, I've been doing a lot of my work from out on the, um, shall I say, the front patio, and it's been quite pleasant. Very nice. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Hopefully others in Florida can say the same and ultimately make make lemonade out of this. <laughs> Uh, where you guys are, are you specifically remind me of where you are in Florida? Is it Tampa? We are an hour south of Tampa, and we okay. are an hour north of where Ian made landfall, so we were spared the worst of it. Gotcha. Okay, but but you still experienced probably quite a bit of storms. Uh, yeah, and in Sarasota, we it's a lot of trees down, a lot of fences down, um, but not whole houses, and we didn't have catastrophic so. It's all relative. It was really, really bad other places in Florida, and I feel fortunate. And um, so that that's the making lemonade piece. I've got a nice sunny front. Yeah, definitely. Winter weather. I'll take it. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm jealous of your winter weather that you'll be experiencing. Um, so I, actually, my down zone is about a natural disaster, too. Well, actually, it's less of a natural disaster, kind of an unnatural disaster, but so I'm from St. Louis originally. You may have known that. And uh, you may also be aware that St. Louis was basically home during World War II to the Manhattan Project and like weapons manufacturing and nuclear weapons manufacturing and has all of these sites throughout the metro where I guess atomic waste was just like dumped and left for several decades and many of them are former or current cleanup sites. And so there was a story that was released out of North County this week that basically it, it was a story that broke about an independent study that was conducted at an elementary school along Coldwater Creek where they came in and they found like major uh, levels of radioactive waste inside the school. And so it's become this really big national story. And like, I, I don't know why, but this has been a topic that ever since I learned about it, it's like anytime anything comes up, I get like really obsessed with it and do a bunch of research on like the floodplain and the topography all throughout North County and, and all of these sites. And so that has actually taken up a lot of my time this week. I've just been looking at like floodplain maps and trying to figure out like where this could have spread. And it's it's really, really sad because the creek that runs all throughout North County is called Coldwater Creek. And I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I don't know that you can ever fully clean up the creek. Um, and there's a bunch of, you know, questions about like, cancer clusters and contamination levels and how far has it spread and is it 
you know, worse than the than just in the floodplain. And so there's a lot of questions that I think people have in the St. Louis region that are unanswered even to this day. Uh, and it's been almost 80 years. So it's a it's a huge concern. There's apparently an underground fire near the airport <laughs> um, at the landfill. I mean, if you look into this, it's it's insane. Um, there's a couple of documentaries called there's one that's called Atomic Homefront, which basically covers the perspective of like people living in the, these areas. And the, there's another one that's called The Safe Side of the Fence that covers multiple different sites and kind of the full spectrum of nuclear manufacturing in St. Louis um, and, you know, multiple different sites of contamination and whatnot. So I don't know why. It's just something that I'm like – kind of obsessed with the story. I'm I'm constantly like checking in on it whenever there's a new story that comes out and it's it's horrible. Like I I can't understand why I don't know. It, it's like it's so bad that I don't know that you can ever fully resolve these problems. Like you can't just buy everybody out and and then compensate people for generations, I suppose, you know, of potentially becoming ill or how do you even quantify that? It's just, it's like horrible. It's a horrible situation going on in St. Louis. So my heart goes out to that situation. Wow. I had no idea about any of that. Now I'm going to look into it. Yeah. Now you can become obsessed with it and be burdened. (laughs) If you're interested in like just environmental issues and I don't know, just these stories that are kind of unbelievable that are going on today, it will fascinate you. I, I find this topic to be fascinating and really sad and disturbing. So uh, so I guess we'll leave it there on a positive note. <laughs> Daniel, thanks so much for joining me today uh, for another episode of Upzoned. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Daniel. Let me show you what I'm about to do.